This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the first letter of John called Life in God's Love. Well, welcome to TICF. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Daniel, and it is an honor to get to open God's Word again with you all um, this evening. Uh, as a reminder, in our little preacher boy band that we have, Bart is the lead singer, and he's going through a series of all the Old Testament books. Each week we get a new Old Testament book, and then us backup singers, there's a handful of us guys going through 1 John, verse by verse, and um, just thought I would give you that image just as we start out. We're actually going to, we're up to chapter 2, verse 12, so if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to 1 John, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12, and as you're turning there, let's remember Conrad, last time he drew our attention to this idea, there's both a vertical and horizontal aspect to love. And they are interdependent. Uh, We have the greatest commandment to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. We also have verses like John 13, 35 that says, By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So loving God is not like picking your nose. It's not a habit that you can keep a secret from everyone around you. Yeah? It is something that will be obvious to everyone around you because everywhere that you go, your love for God will be demonstrated. You will bring light to everyone and in every circumstance that you find yourself in because the love of God and the love of neighbor are interdependent. Well, this next section starts out with a series of declarations to different groups designed to reinforce their identity. John has been telling If you remember what we've gone through so far, John has been talking to uh, the church, the churches he's writing to, and he is um, saying, if you're like this, if you know the Father, we can expect we're going to see these types of things, these types of behaviors in your life. If you're walking in the light, we can expect to see these certain types of things in your life. And now he actually starts preaching. Look at what he says, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children. Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, there's a debate on the different groups that he's talking about here. He could be talking to actual age groups, fathers, young men, little children. Or he could be talking to different people at different statuses of maturity in the faith. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you're an adolescent in the faith. Maybe you're a a mature believer. That's actually not the most important part of this text, especially since The statements apply to all believers. All of these statements apply to all believers. So that's not the most important part. 
John has been describing the behaviors associated with those who know God, who have been forgiven, who have overcome the evil one and darkness, who are strong and who have God's word in them. Look actually at chapter 1 verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. There's that that forgiveness of sins piece, right? Look at verse 9 as well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins or if we're walking in the light, we can trust that our sins are forgiven. And then he comes in our text and he says, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven. So he's been describing the associated behaviors of certain believers, and then he starts to preach. He says, this is you. This is you. So much of the Christian life is just having what's true preached to you again and again, isn't it? That's really a large part of the Christian life. The truth being presented to you over and over and over again in lots of different mediums, right? We come together and we sing. And that does something for us, right? We sing these amazing truths. It does something for us, right? We open God's word and we listen to preaching. And that reminds us of what's true again and again and again. It's like John, it's, it's, it's the same thing that John is doing to the church here. I'm telling you, your sins are forgiven, right? And we need to hear that over and over and over again. We come to the Lord's table every week so that we can come face to face with something that's true that changes everything about us. So much of the Christian life is just listening to the truth, and we need this. I actually heard a um, definition uh, in the last couple of weeks. I don't remember what I was reading or listening to, but it was, they were talking about shock, right? And I think it had to do with what's happening in Ukraine or, or something, and they were talking about what actual shock is. And shock isn't necessarily your response to something, some, something intense happening to you. But it's actually, yeah, it's not just a reaction to a painful event, but it's described as losing the narrative. You experience shock when you've lost the narrative. That means there's a story that you've believed, and there's a role that you've played in that story up until now. Something has happened where all of a sudden you're not sure where you fit anymore. You're not sure what story is being told anymore, right? And and that that kind of shock comes at us, and, and we can't, we can't interpret reality the same way or our role in that, that spot, right? And I sort of feel like that when we, when we start forgetting the truths about what God has declared, we've sort of lost the narrative, haven't we? And we live in this state of sort of spiritual shock. Or if, maybe it's an event that's happened to us, or maybe, it's, maybe it just gradually seeps out. Maybe it's, there's a slow leak somewhere, and the truth seeps out, and we start believing something else. Why does this happen? We actually start to write different verses to ourselves, right? So instead of verse 12 saying, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, we write something like this to ourselves. We say, your sins define you. They have piled up and you have so much work to do to get out. Maybe after you've worked hard for a while, God will stop being disappointed in you. We, we start to speak those messages. Or how about this one? Instead of, because you know him who is from the beginning, we start to preach to ourselves things like, you don't know him. And in fact, what you do know about him, you're starting 
to not like so much. Or instead of 14, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you, or you've overcome the evil one, we say, you are overcome by the evil one. The chains that he has you in are unbreakable. Your grief, your lust, your physical limitations, these are chains that he has over you that you can't break free from. These are the kinds of things that we tell ourselves. Or you are weak and you don't have the resources within you to flourish. Words create worlds. And how much, like what we're seeing here in John, are we letting God speak? How much are we letting God create the world that we see? Where do these other messages come from? That's actually where John goes next. Look at uh, verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So what does this mean? Do not love the world or anything in the world. Does that mean I can't love Hinkali? Is this, is, am I interpreting the text correctly here? What does it mean for us? He's telling us you can't love the world or anything in the world. Well, thankfully, he clarifies in verse 16 what he means. Because after, after all, God says he loves the world, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? There's a lot of scripture telling us how we're supposed to treat the world, how we're supposed to feel about the people of the world or the things of this world. So, so what does he mean by do not love the world or the things of the world? Well, thankfully in verse 16, everything in the world, namely the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. The, world, the word world is used in a lot of different ways in Scripture. The world here is not the material universe and all it contains, okay? That's not a good interpretation of world here, the material universe and all it contains. But whatever it means here... It stands in direct competition to God. You can't love both at the same time, right? So whatever world means here, it's standing in direct competition to God, and you can't love both at the same time. So Hinkali is safe, I think, unless you figure out a way to make Hinkali in direct competition with God. It, it might be possible, right? And I heard a really good illustration that kind of unpacks this idea of what loving the world might look like or how to interpret world. Um, that I think will help, help us get our heads around this idea. Think of it like a wheel that has lots of different spokes coming off of it. And there's sort of a unifying center that all these spokes are coming off of. So if you think of, for instance, the world of finance, you have banks, credit unions, savings accounts, hedge funds, foreign exchange, investments, cryptocurrencies, right? You've got a lot of everything that is the world of finance. And then you have the unifying core of all of those things, which is money, right? So if we can think of it like that, it's an organized system with different spokes coming off that have a, unif uh, a unifying element at the center. So in our text here, the unifying element is this belief. God is excluded, irrelevant, and replaced. That's the unifying element here is do not love the world or anything in the world. And the list that he gives, that unifying element of whatever stems from the world is God is excluded, 
irrelevant, replaced in this world that is in direct competition or hostility towards God. So coming off of this belief, we have these three categories given to us in verse 16. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but comes from the world. So we've got these three categories coming from this organized system that excludes God or treats God as irrelevant, okay? We have the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, or the pursuit of pleasure, possessions, and position. Man, I'm such a good Baptist. Do you like that? All three P, four Ps, right? The pursuit of pleasure, possessions, and position. This is how we can understand what these things are that stem out of this place where God is irrelevant or replaced, right? Excluded. When God is excluded or irrelevant, our affection, our purpose terminates on these things. You understand what I mean by that? So our pleasure, our possessions, our position, right? Our affections, our purpose terminate on those things when God is excluded. Let's just go one by one through them. What do we mean by lust of the flesh? Well, from the world, as defined by here, the lust of the flesh is pleasure is my chief pursuit and what God has condemned or forbidden is irrelevant. God has been replaced by pleasure which means the greatest virtue is prioritizing your own pleasures, even at the expense or at the exploitation of other people, okay? Fill, giving in to those pleasures, waking up every day saying, the number one thing on my agenda today is to make sure that this is satisfied. No matter what God has said about if it's pure or good or true, and no matter how it affects other people, okay? My number one priority is pursuing my own Pleasure. And the greatest sin, if this is in this world, right, the greatest virtue is pursuing my own pleasure. The greatest sin is denying myself. That's how this world functions. The greatest thing you can pursue is what you want in this world. Satisfy yourself. The greatest sin is denying yourself. And anyone who tells you to deny yourself is lying to you. Instead, this is God, the world as God defines it instead of the world as we define it. Instead, God gives us the discipline of fasting as a ritual reminder to deny our flesh and remember that our hunger for purity should be strongest. So there is hunger, there is drive, right? Instead of lust of the flesh, we're hungering after something else in God's world as God defines it, which is hungering after purity. That's what we wake up and strive for, holiness, purity. And he teaches us, actually, that pleasure is a conduit for praise. That's its rightful place. Pleasure is a conduit for praise. You know what I mean by a conduit for praise? It means that these things that are good in this world, that have not been condemned by God, should reorient our affections towards God as we experience the pleasure of them. Pleasure is a conduit for praise. It shouldn't terminate on itself. It keeps us from finding pleasure in things that are evil and abusing things that were created for our delight. It doesn't terminate on itself, but leads us to worship. This is the world that God has defined, where God is not irrelevant, excluded, or replaced where God is at the center. 
Okay, so this is the lust of the flesh. And then it's reinterpretation or it's correction by the world that God wants us to live in. What about the lust of the eyes? Right, you remember this is the pursuit of possessions. Instead of looking at God and declaring, declaring when you look at God, without you, I have nothing. We look at our possessions or our wealth and we say, without you, I have nothing. Without you, I am nothing. This is how the lust of the eyes works. There's a, a subreddit, if any of you know what Reddit is, there's a subreddit out there um, for those who have achieved uh, FIRE, F-I-R-E. It's an acronym that stands for Financial Independence Retired Early, okay? So these are people that made it big really quick, and they're in their 30s, and they've retired. They have enough money. They're set up for life. And it's a subreddit where they're talking about their life and how it feels to be retired early and financially independent, okay? So this is all their meditations about what life is like and what they're after. And okay, like, so everyone kind of comes into the subreddit and peers in, okay, like, I think this is what we're all after, right? So what do you have at the end of the day? Like, what's it like? Because we all would love to be there, right? What's really interesting is they've realized they're actually miserable and discontent. A lot of them actually go back to work because it's... This whole time, they've been lied to. They just realized they've been lied to, but they're still not sure what the truth is, right? And you could just hear that through all the stuff that they write. You know, there's just, they're holding this thing that was promised was the kind of the pinnacle of existence. And it, it's a dry cistern, right? They're still thirsty. Like, what, what do I have at the end of the day? The lust of the eyes is rooted in what we believe about the stuff that we want. The lust of the eyes is rooted in what we believe about the stuff that we look at, that we covet, that we want. We think of it as our significance or our security. We can start to believe about these things, that they are what make me significant or important. My wealth, like how much money I have, the types of restaurants I can go to, the types of traveling I can do, the fact that I can buy first-class ticket or something, right? This is, to, this is a, a place where we can draw a source of significance. My wife just looked at me. I don't actually buy first-class tickets. I need to clarify my language here. But yeah, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's, it's what gives us our significance. I'm important because I can do these things or I have these things or a sense of security, and many of us who don't have those means are chasing those things, those means, because we think that this will actually give us some sense of control, right? We will be un have things under control if we have the financial resources to take care of ourselves in the case of an emergency, right? Or, or any of that, that kind of stuff. It's, it's in direct competition with God when you treat your possessions or your wealth to do what only God can do. Like use it to define your sense of self or your sense of worth or generate security or control in an uncontrollable world. We get into trouble with the lust of the eyes when we start to believe certain things about what we own, what we have, that we can only trust God to give us, to provide for us. Notice the problem here is not in the having, but in the loving. I need to clarify that. The problem with the the, the pursuit of possessions here is not in the having, but in the loving. 
You don't diagnose the lust of the eyes by looking around and saying, this is too much or this is too little. That's not the diagnostic. You diagnose it by asking yourself if you believe something about your possessions or your wealth that you should only believe about God. That's how you diagnose the lust of the eyes, is when I think about the things that I have or the things that I want or the wealth that I have in my bank account, do I believe about those things what I should only be believing about God? Heard another interesting illustration about, you know you have a problem with money or the pursuit of it, the pursuit of possessions, based on how you think about wealthy people, about rich people. If you have only nasty things to say about wealthy people, right, there's a large likelihood that there's a certain amount of covetousness there or some other thing. Or if you find yourself next to somebody who's wealthy and you suddenly recognize you're changing your behavior significantly, right, potentially to find a friend or someone who you could leverage their wealth and their clout and their status in order to get you certain places, whatever, you also believe something that might be problematic about wealth. Well, if you really just don't care, right, that's a good sign. If you really don't care when you're with someone who's wealthy and they have all this stuff and they have these experiences and all this kind of stuff and it does absolutely nothing to you, then there's a good chance that you're in a good spot with this. The diagnostic is not how much there is or how little there is, but are you looking at this through a lens that puts it in direct competition with God because you're expecting things of wealth you're expecting things of your possessions that only God can provide. Now, God has given us a ritual reminder to help us with this as well. You'll remember we have ritual reminders that God has given us to battle the lust of the flesh, right? We have things like fasting. God has given us a ritual reminder as well to battle the lust of the eyes. We have Sabbath. And why do I bring that up? Well, what, what heart disposition is God after for Sabbath? This is where we're supposed to rest. And you remember what the commands were given to the Israelites. And remember, it was the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And remember that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. You're supposed to remember something fundamentally that God is the one that provides you everything that you have, both for salvation and sustenance. He is the provider of everything. And you are supposed to devote a sizable amount of your time sitting in gratitude at his feet for that. This is what Sabbath is supposed to, to build in. We're supposed to be reminded regularly that God is the provider of all things. This is a ritual reminder for us for gratitude. He's also given us tithing, a chance to declare with our wallets what we prioritize in this world, which is God bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We prioritize with our wallets as a church by giving 10% of everything that we make to accomplish God's work in this world. We've got a couple of other ritual reminders to help us with the pride or the, the, the lust of the eyes. What about the pride of life? This is the pursuit of position, like Eve. And if you look through, all of these temptations all, were exactly what Adam and Eve struggled with, and were actually the temptations that were given to Christ in the desert. These same three things, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Like Eve, the pride of life comes in and says, you can decide for yourself what is true, good, and right. You can decide. How dare anyone challenge your opinions, your truth, even God? 
That's where the pride of life comes in. You should get to decide for yourself what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. There is a world where your pleasure is primary, you get whatever you want, and everyone agrees with you. That is the world you are warned against in this text. There is a world where your pleasure is primary, you get whatever you want, and everyone agrees with you. It kind of sounds familiar, right? It sort of sounds a lot like what's being pushed on us every single day, right? Your pleasure is primary, you should get whatever you want, and don't let anybody disagree with you. But that is the pursuit of pleasure, possessions, and position. There's a way of interpreting this text when it says, do not love the world, that keeps us actually from addressing the real problem. Notice that the problem isn't out there in this text. Sometimes in the church, we can quote a a verse like, do not love the world, that big, nasty, horrible world, and think that the problem is out there. The fact that others have lust, greed, and pride isn't the problem. It's in here. The problem is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The problem is here. The problem is not out there. And it's possible, actually, to create a Christian subculture of this where your pleasure is primary, you get whatever you want, and everyone agrees with you, and you use the church or God to get it. It is possible to create a Christian subculture version of this world that you're told and instructed to avoid here. That's why these disciplines and these rituals that God has given us are so important. Let's look at verse 17 as we move close to close. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's folly to pursue this world. Notice the world and its desires are passing away. That means not only if you have like this subreddit group, once you have absolutely everything, it's folly because it's all going away someday, but even the desires are going away. That means you're not going to even like this stuff anymore. You're not going to even want to do this or want to live this way anymore. The world and its desires are passing away. It's folly to pursue them. It's folly to treat God as irrelevant and replace him entirely with pleasure, possessions, and position. The one who does God's will here is the one who has rejected the world and let God shape who you are and what you want. There's a lot of chasing in the, in the church as well as I don't know what the will of God for my life is. Well, it's here for you. The one who does the will of God is the one who lets God shape who you are and what you want. That's the will of God for your life. So who are you and what do you want? Are you letting God's words create your world? Are you letting him speak over you, saying your sins are forgiven? You know the Father. You're strong. You have overcome the evil one. Or are you listening and letting the thoughts of the world come in and tell you your pleasure is primary? You should get whatever you want and don't let anybody disagree with you. So how do you keep yourself from loving the world? It's a good question because like I said, it's like it's easy for us to start to lose the narrative. Actually, why we come together every week for the Lord's Supper, it's like reset, right? I've needed it like by Wednesday, Tuesday sometimes, just the truth is seeping out somewhere. I've got a leak somewhere and I've started to believe other things and they usually go this direction. 
So, so how do we keep ourselves from loving the world? Well, we need to ask ourselves if God is excluded or irrelevant in defining who you are and what you want. So just go down the list. Where is God irrelevant? Where is God excluded from how I think about who I am and what I want? Ask yourself these hard questions. Go through what I think about pleasure, what I think about possessions, what I think about my position, my status, my importance, my relevance. And sit at the feet of God and say, teach me. I, uh, somehow I've made you irrelevant in this area. Somehow I've excluded you in this area. Teach me. Change me. Use the ritual reminders that God has established for these things. To reclaim the purpose of pleasure. To relearn how to deny yourself. To reframe what you let your possessions and wealth say about you. And to remove yourself from the throne of your own life. Let me say that again. To reclaim the purpose of pleasure, to relearn how to deny yourself, to reframe what you let your possessions and wealth say about you, and to remove yourself from the throne of your own life. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, it's so good for us. It is so good for us to be here and to sit under your word and to come face to face with some beautiful teachings, but some Challenging teachings. What a delight that you speak over us and have spoken over us this evening, um, what you think about us. We've overcome the evil one. We are, we are strong. We know you. Your word is in us. These are such beautiful truths that we need to cling to, that you preach over us. But we confess, Lord, that sometimes we love the world. Sometimes pleasure becomes primary. Sometimes we look at what we have and treat it like we treat you. We expect from it what we can only expect from you, that our sense of self and our sense of worth should come from the fact that we're a child of the king, not because of what we own or don't own. Help us, Lord, there. Lord, where we are striving for position, where we're drawing our sense of self and sense of worth from whatever we've accomplished Correct us. Help us reframe our minds about these things. Help us redeem pleasure, Lord, as a conduit for praise. And help us, Father, be faithful to use these ritual reminders that you've given us, Lord, to come face to face, sitting at your feet in Sabbath rest, declaring that you've provided all that we need. From a heart of gratitude, declaring that you're in control. Help us, Father, relearn to fast to deny our bodies so that we can say the most, the thing that we need most is purity, holiness, love, that we would even deny what our physical bodies need so that we can show you, demonstrate to ourselves and to you that our priority is holiness, our desire to be near you and like you. Pray, Father, that you would, from this evening going forward, that you would instruct us and shape us according to what we've read and studied here this evening, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. 
Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.